on. I'm on You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Beck Legato, and thanks for joining us. This week, you'll hear about the recent protest that shook the Ithaca Commons. It's super interesting. A lot of people are very closed off. You'll hear how to stay safe and have fun during Halloween. There may not be ghosts or vampires out there, but Halloween is nonetheless more dangerous this year due to COVID-19. A voting and candidate guide for Tompkins County. Please vote early. It's going to reduce the amount of density at the voting location. You'll hear from candidate for assembly, Anna Kells. Uh, so for the last couple of months, I've been working very hard to find um, a solution to our broadband problem. And that has been sort of what I've been eating, breathing, sleeping, and drinking. Also run down on a black town hall. That takes a, a toll on you mentally, whether or not you, you think it does. And a student-run virtual theater event happening this weekend. I knew that I wanted to do radio. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. Ithaca High School has decided to extend its socially distanced learning from October 26th to November 6th after three students test positive for COVID-19. Despite this, the schools will still be serving free meals to distance learning students daily. The meals can be picked up from 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at Ithaca High School and and 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at West Village Apartments and the elementary and middle schools. Two protests flooded the commons yesterday, one back to blue rally and one counter protest put together by local anti-racism activists. The activist rally started earlier around noon and protesters created signs and barriers. Upon arrival, back to blue organizers make remarks about how they believed that there was a false narrative being pushed against the police force. Although local officials had made statements regarding not being certain about guaranteeing personal safety, the events dispersed without any violence. At a protest following the arrest of protesters Messia Saunders and Genevieve Rand, the Ithaca Police Department utilized pepper spray to disperse the protest crowd for the first time after months of protests calling for the defunding of the IPD. Six protesters were also arrested, five of which received tickets for unlawful assembly, while the sixth was charged with misdemeanor obstruction of governmental administration. A TCAT bus was involved in a crash hitting four properties in Ithaca, announced Ithaca PD. According to the police report, the driver lost control of the vehicle and crashed, not harming any other vehicles. All the passengers and the driver did not have any major injuries that required immediate attention. One of the properties that the bus crashed into saw major damage. The Ithaca police are currently investigating a homicide that occurred in the 500 block of West State Street around 10.30 p.m. on Wednesday. While the Ithaca Police Department is receiving aid on this case from the New York State Police Bureau of Investigation, among others, anyone with additional information on this case is asked to call the Ithaca Police Department Investigation Division at 607-272-9973, option 4, or leave an anonymous tip at cityofithaca.org. Dogs might be finally allowed on the Commons Ithaca's Planning and Economic Development Committee last meeting show. The only animals currently allowed on the Commons are those who have a special permit, only given to the pet owners who live on the Commons. The highly debated issue has been going on for more than five years, and the latest PEDC meeting showed that some members were leaning towards allowing pets on leashes. The debate will potentially be back at the next month's meeting. 
Portia's Cabrera, I'm Celine Stott with WICD News. This week, downtown Ithaca was host to multiple protests with hundreds arriving to hold what organizers called an anti-racist festival against hate in response to a Back the Blue rally held that same afternoon in the Ithaca Commons. WICB news reporter Christian Maitre was at the scene and spoke to protesters. Yesterday, just before 2 p.m., I went down to the Ithaca Commons, where Back the Blue protesters had gathered to peacefully protest, and Black Lives Matter protesters assembled to peacefully counter-protest the Back the Blue supporters. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Aside from protesters, there were also observers trying to learn more about each side's argument. I'm here today because I was kind of just curious to hear. I'm, I live in a sort of a very liberal enclave, so I was like, you know what? It's time for me to hear both sides of the story. So I came here and tried talking to people. It was super interesting. A lot of people are very closed off, um, and they really won't want to talk to you. Like I, I think people are afraid, like that they'll say something that you'll have a problem with, and then they'll be mad at you. I'm Christian Matry, and yesterday I asked every person I talked to why they were there. I found that everyone had a unique reason for attending, but one thing people did have in common was they all had a lot to say. My son is a police officer in Baltimore and it's all about him okay it's all about him he has brothers and sisters they're they're all colors it's that simple all police officers are brothers and Everybody sisters in upstate new york are all it's all mixed you don't have to explain yourself yeah i'm here to fight our corrupt system that we have and the racism that's uh in our community i'm 77 years old and I have come to be a peaceful presence in the midst of all the shouting um, and to pray for the country. I spoke to Rocco Lucente, one of the main organizers of the Back the Blue protest on Saturday. I asked him why he was protesting. So we're here today to support our local law enforcement and our Tompkins County Sheriff's, the Police Department and all of the departments within the county and to push back against what we see as the false narratives of the local media, the local political establishment. I asked Lucente what he believed these false narratives were. The narrative that the police are a systemically racist problem who have been targeting black people and black communities for years and decades. We find that to be statistically unproven. So, you know, if there's this big problem with the police being a racist force, I have not seen the evidence of it, and until I do, we will continue to push back against the narrative. Protesters I spoke with from the Black Lives Matter movement disagreed, saying that the Back the Blue protest had a different objective, and that their presence had negative connotations associated with it. Um, well, they're opposing a lot of the police brutality that's going on, and they're perpetuating a lot of social injustice. So I'm just curious how people can justify having a counter-protest of people who are being killed in streets every day. How can you protest a protest? Unfortunately, one of the, one of the problems with the opposition is they think oppositionally that what they're doing is community. Spreading hate is not community. That is tearing us apart. And at this point, our biggest goal is for people to realize that they have somebody to back them up if they can't go to anybody else. We as a community will back them up. Although tension rose as the protest went on. Yeah, you're calling people names and that's what you belong to. 
Attendees hoped that the protest would remain peaceful. I'm here basically to see if everybody can keep it at peace and we can all come together and just kind of rally as one. Some appreciated that their communities were coming together and communicating their problems peacefully. Honestly, this is one of the most beautiful displays of what actual community looks like. For WICB News, I'm Christian Matry. This is Ithka now on WICB. I'm Beck Legato. Halloween is coming up, but of course you'll have to stay safe while having fun. News Director Jay Bradley touched on how to have fun and protect those around you while enjoying the holiday. A dark night. The moon partially obscured by clouds. A wolf. A witch. A ghost. Excitedly approach a house that left its porch light on, in the hopes of filling their baskets and stomachs with more and more candy as the night goes on. That's how it would normally be anyways. Now kids are trading in ghoul masks for cloth ones, and Halloween is going to be looking a bit different this year. There may not be ghosts or vampires out there, but Halloween is nonetheless more dangerous this year due to COVID-19 and it'll look a bit different to keep it safe for everyone this Saturday. Tompkins County's Public Health Director Frank Krupa says that with rising cases, the best way to celebrate this year is at home with your family. But if you do choose to trick-or-treat or choose to leave treats, you must be wearing a mask like you have been and keep up social distancing. Halloween masks may not cut it, so the CDC says keep wearing a cloth face covering over your nose and mouth when out. Hand sanitizer, too? Always a plus. The best way to give out candy? Leave it individually wrapped and spread out on a table outside your house, preferably by the sidewalk or driveway to avoid crowd congestion. Always make sure to wash your hands with soap and water before prepping your treats. Also, Tompkins County is offering a free printout to put out if you're welcoming trick-or-treaters. Find it on TompkinsCountyNY.gov health. Now, even if you don't feel comfortable going house to house this year, don't worry. There's still a lot more you can do. Carving jack-o'-lanterns is a personal favorite of mine, and you can even do it safely with neighbors or friends by carving and decorating it outside at a safe distance. Be sure to go to WICB.org to find our guide to finding the perfect pumpkin. The county also recommends some other activities, both fun and safe, like a movie night where you can pull up classics like Halloween Town or Charlie Brown, or have a virtual costume contest with your friends. Not a trick-or-treater and looking for another type of activity? Well, don't worry, there's still a lot of things outside to try. The drive-in Ithaca is offering two dusk showings of Casper at 6.30 on both Friday and Halloween night. The History Center in Tompkins County is offering Haunted History Tours, which run again this Thursday and Friday that can be registered for on thehistorycenter.net slash October. And they're offering a Cemeteries of Tompkins County History Scavenger Hunt and Activity Booklet on the website too. If you're in for a little drive, Stoughton Farm in Nork Valley and Iron Kettle Farms in Cander are still running their corn mazes. And for something a little bit more theatrical, the Encore Players Community Theater in Trumansburg is presenting Ghost Walks titled Murder and Other Mayhem at Grove Cemetery. Starting from the Grove Cemetery Chapel in Trumansburg with brief dramatic vignettes written by Ulysses Town Historian John Werdis. These events and more, as well as links to their registration, can be found on events.visitithaca.com and on wicb.org. 
But of course, safety comes first. Stay in the open air, wear a mask, and don't do anything you're uncomfortable with. And don't go out if you feel sick or believe you've been exposed to COVID-19. Have a spooky, fun, and most importantly, safe Halloween. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Beck Legato. As people start to vote early and drop off their absentee ballots, many are still planning to vote in person and on Election Day. WICB News correspondents George Christopher and Hamadri Saith put together a voter's guide for those in Tompkins County so you know not only who you can vote for, but also how you can in this unusual year. 2020 election coverage is seemingly unavoidable, but national media tends to focus on a handful of federal races. We at WICB are proud to bring you this voter guide on three races in the Tompkins area. For New York's 23rd district, five-term incumbent Tom Reed, a Republican, will take on Democrat Tracy Metrano. This will be a rematch of the 2018 race for the 23rd district seat. In that race, Reed managed to win the race with 54% of the vote. Prior to running for Congress, Reed served as mayor of Corning for two years. Metrano, on the other hand, has spent her time prior to politics as Director of Information Technology Policy at Cornell University. Metrano has made this past a focal point of her campaign, saying that Congress must pursue cybersecurity and gain a larger understanding of the internet. Metrano has also attacked Reed as being neglectful of the community and refusing to debate her. For state senate, incumbent Republican Thomas O'Mara is looking to retain his seat from the 58th district for a sixth term. Opposing Senator O'Mara is advocate and Democratic nominee Leslie Danks-Burke. While O'Mara is a veteran senator, Burke has touted her work as an advocate for groups like Planned Parenthood. Burke previously ran for state senate in 2016 and ran for the U.S. House of Representatives four years before that in 2012. Mr. O'Mara has pushed his previous record and relationships with local officials that he says can help him represent the 58th district. He has also stressed his work to protect local manufacturing industries. Ms. Burke has argued that Mr. O'Mara is out of touch with the struggles of everyday people, especially young people. Ms. Burke has pushed an agenda of bringing jobs back to the 58th district and help offer more opportunities to young people looking for work. Burke has specifically expressed support for investing in clean, renewable energy to act as a job creator in the 58th district. Last is the race for the 125th district New York State Assembly seat. This is an open seat with incumbent Democrat Barbara Lifton choosing to retire after this term. Running on the Democratic side is Tompkins County Legislator Anna Kells, and for both the Republican and Libertarian parties is former Marine Matthew McIntyre. Ms. Kells has pushed her record as a county legislator on issues such as youth tobacco use, environmental protection, immigrants' rights, and affordable housing. McIntyre, however, has stressed traditional but moderate libertarian positions on most issues such as health care, drug policy, and firearm policies. That's what you need to know about the local candidates, but the voting process itself calls for equal attention. We talked to Dominic Riccio, Communications Director for Tompkins County Administration. I work with county government operations and departments and making sure that uh, our public information gets out, uh, that the community is informed, and uh, that we engage the community throughout our processes. Vecchio tells us about precautions that will be taken and things to be mindful of while voting with the pandemic still out there. So with coronavirus, um, the 
it's it's imperative that people continue to follow the guidance while they're voting. There's early voting that starts uh, shortly that begins uh, this weekend in Tompkins County and actually on all of New York State. We have two locations for early voting here. Um, but in terms of the COVID safety protocols, it's good for folks to know that all poll workers have been trained in COVID-19 protocols. Uh, the, the main uh, things to keep in mind are keeping six feet of distance while in line between yourself and others. With so many people voting early, uh, it's hopefully there will be less long lines, especially on election day. Masks are required in all spaces. Voters uh, will be required to uh, wear a disposable glove or sort of mitt uh, while they vote uh, to reduce their hands touching the certain uh, pens or other things. And all indoor areas are gonna be sanitized re regularly. Um, and masks are going to be available at different voting sites in Tompkins County for those who may not have one. Another important thing to remember is that the deadline for applying for an absentee ballot is October 27th. They can be mailed in or put into a secure drop box. And for those who haven't yet been able to or won't be able to mail it in or have it postmarked by November 3rd, they can drop it off at any of the early voting sites or drop it off directly on Election Day to the Board of Elections on Buffalo Street in Ithaca. More pertinent information can be found on their website. The place where people can find all of that information is votetompkins.com. Uh, VoteTompkins.com directs you right to the Board of Elections website. It talks about the absentee ballot process and the drop box that's available during business hours. It talks about extended hours at the Board of Elections. Um, it has uh, the ability to apply for an absentee ballot right there on the website. Um, and it also has information uh, on, on early voting locations uh, where they can where you can show up to vote. We have the, the town of Ithaca town offices and the crash fire rescue uh, building up near the airport are both available for, for early voting hours. The entire election calendar can also be found on votetompkins.com. For those who do not have access to the internet, here's what you can do. If there are individuals who uh, either can't make it onto votetompkins.com to check out some answers or who may not even have internet access in a similar way, um, I would encourage them to do one of two things. They could go to the library. Uh, any library is likely to have uh, librarians or volunteers who will know the information on how to vote in your community. Um, and you could call your local library or the Tompkins County Public Library um, is open Tuesdays and Thursdays 10 to 1 and is also open on Saturdays 3 to 6 uh, for some, um, some availability for internet stations for people who may not have access to broadband or, or otherwise. And the phone number for our Board of Elections here in Tompkins County, and they can answer any of the questions about what it might look like to vote, that is 607-274-5522. For many first-time voters, things may be harder to navigate than for others. Rakio emphasizes the importance of making a plan for your voting process to minimize the noise. For first-time voters, it's important to make a plan. I think that's that's been a big part of the national narrative. You know, make a plan. What time of day are you going to go? What location are you going to go to? If you can go to early voting, please vote early. It's going to reduce the amount of density at the voting location. Um, because that's one of the coronavirus guidelines it is, is reducing density at any location so it reduces the potential of spread. And then additionally, making 
you know, a plan to, to look over the entire ballot in, it, in, its, um, in its entirety. Sometimes every once in a while, people are confused as to the layout of a ballot. Um, and it's important to check that out before uh, going in to, to cast your vote. Vecchio points out the significance of poll workers for a smooth election process and encourages more people to participate in future elections. There was a call for a while for, for folks to sign up as poll workers, especially young people who, um, you know, as a majority of our poll workers are older adults um, and therefore are uh, more predisposed to, um, to COVID-19's impacts. And so we're really just encouraging folks or we were previously encouraging folks to sign up as poll workers, but we had a, a significant number of people sign up and turn out for that. So that's a great thing from the community. And I would say that will be ongoing. So while we may have had, you know, hundreds of people who wanted to be poll workers in this round, we're going to need those poll workers just as much or even more in future elections. So that's something if you like the democratic process and being involved in civic engagement, signing up as a poll worker in the future is a great way to make a difference in the community. Um, and especially during COVID-19, it's something that's going to keep a lot of folks safer. Early voting began October 24th and ends November 1st. You can find election information on votetompkins.com or the national website vote.org. Election Day is November 3rd. Make your vote count. For WICB News, I'm George Christopher. And I'm Himadri Sait. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Bakwagata. One of the most contested primary races this spring was that of the 125th Assembly District. Out of the many Democrats running, Anna Kells took the race. Correspondent Jordan Birking reached out to her campaign to see not only how she stands in the race, but also what it's like to run a campaign while keeping up your original office's responsibilities. With election day just about a week away, Anna Kels is working to win the general election for the 125 district seat, while continuing her role as a Tompkins County legislator. I'm, I'm always wearing those two hats. Um, so on, on the, the hat of my campaign hat, um, I have uh, continued to, to reach out and do sort of COVID updates um, and daily summaries. Um, but that's, you know, I, I, I'm doing that more in the context of my legislative hat um, in or more just from my heart. You know, COVID is an extremely scary experience and we're all isolated and there's so much information coming out and it's really hard to get all of it. So. Um, I was doing daily summaries and those go out to about 10,000 people uh, every time I do them. So that's just an organic way that I've stayed in touch with residents. As far as her campaign hat goes, Anna recently participated in numerous town halls, including one with the Latino Civic Association, while she and her campaign worked on numerous phone and texting banking initiatives. But the big difference the general election is bringing to Kellis is the number of candidates she's running against this time, compared to the New York State primary last June. Next week, Voters in the area will have the opportunity to vote for Kellis or Libertarian Matthew McIntyre. However, during the New York State primary, Kellis faced off against six other contestants for a Democratic nomination. Kellis said she has kept herself aligned on what she said in the primary and also expanded on some topics as she had an opportunity to dive into a wide array of them over the last few months. You know, I'm not going to craft my message um, differently uh, because I've got a wider audience. I am who I am. You know, and if, if if I stay true to who I am, um, then it, it won't, the work and the message that I put out when I campaign won't be different than the efforts that I'm doing when I legislate. I think I've pretty much been consistent um, and people will, will either 
will either believe in what I, what I believe in and feel that they trust me or feel that they know me enough and feel confident that I will represent them or, or they don't. And in, in both cases, I deeply respect that. That's democracy, you know, not to sound cheesy, but it really is. In a previous interview for ICTV's New York State primary coverage, Cal spoke about many issues she would handle if elected to the state assembly, including ways to boost the economy and provide more affordable housing. But a topic that she has expanded on since the primary happened is broadband coverage across the state. Uh, so for the last couple of months, I've been working very hard to find um, a solution to our broadband problem. And that has been sort of what I've been eating, breathing, sleeping, and drinking is broadband. I think part of the problem with broadband is that the way that the system is right now, we outsource broadband to private companies. We call them internet service providers. So we give taxpayer money for them to build the physical wires, maintain the wires, and operate service through those wires. And there's not significant oversight on um, or enforcement um, of when they build those wires and where they build those wires to. So they are not going to build out to areas where they are going to lose money. And that tends to be the most rural areas. So it is not a model that works. Kellis wants to support the build out of a regional nonprofit that is affiliated with municipalities as a way to shift the ownership of those wires to be municipally owned. I think that that is the right model with the broadband so that it is truly universal and the focus and the priority is universal coverage. Disenfranchised communities across New York are a part of the groups that do not have universal broadband coverage in addition to a lack of other resources such as affordable housing. In those communities, Cal said funding sources should be distributed to support nonprofits like the Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services who prioritize affordable housing in those areas. But to address the issue statewide, Cal supports small-scale infill but not in areas on the outskirts of town or outside infrastructures where water and sewers need to be added. You have to uh, integrate affordable housing into existing uh, communities and infrastructures. If you are adding housing in such a way that you have to add more water and sewer, you have to look at the maintenance cost of adding more water and sewer and what is the opportunity cost of that? You know, where could that be uh, better invested by a city? Back in June, Kellis said one of the first issues she would handle if elected is racial justice. This is still true for Kellis, and one of her plans to tackle it is to look into alternatives to incarceration across New York, something she said that has been particularly done well in the local area. I'm, I'm very proud of what we've done, and I would love to see some of this done at the state level. You know, we have a mobile crisis unit, so instead of just law enforcement going out to uh, the scene, um, they can call a, you know, from the, um, the, the mental health department, uh, caseworkers that will go out and assess the scene. So if there is a mental health uh, situation that it uh, involved, that people um, can, uh, instead of just going straight into the criminal justice system or straight into jail, they could actually end up, you know, in the hospital or in, in another place that would be more appropriate, not straight into the criminal justice system. I think that is really important because so many of the cases that we have, like people who are in our county jail right now, 80% of them have either mental health issues or drug, um, drug uh, related issues, or both of them simultaneously. It's very, very high. Um, we have now a nurse that is uh, a mental health nurse who is, is in the jail and the assessments, instead of happening months later, you know, weeks or months later, they can happen within the first 24, 48 hours. That way they can get assistance right away. Callis believes even though the county has focused on funding for reentry housing, Statewide, there is still lack of programming of facilities, reentry programs, and supports after the youth leave facilities. 
and as such it ends up becoming a revolving door and you know and it's suspected that you know there's significant amount of recidivism and i say suspected because the data has not been retained and reported on a regular basis and that is something that we'd have to start with we need to see the data so that we can have um, the creation of proper interventions um, but for you know for sure i would love to see reentry support um, implemented uh, in youth detention facilities um, to reduce the, the, the population and the numbers. We have to, you know, prioritize that and interventions that do that as a goal. Another recent topic that has been built off racial justice is to end qualified immunity in addition with calls to defund the police. Last June, Cal said she supported ending qualified immunity and that she now believes defunding the police means focusing resources on addressing structural racism in society. The system is racist. Our education system is racist. Our housing, our you know, job access and opportunity, that entire system is racist. So in my mind, what does it mean by defund the police? It is identifying all of those things. If our priority is to reduce criminality, right? If our, I, if our goal is to help the community, then we should be investing money first in public health measures. We should be investing money in housing. We should be addressing the, the structural racism in housing, in education, in, um, I mean, our curriculum, for example, is so white. You know, like the, there's so many things about black history, so many aspects of it that have never been taught. So, you know, we don't even have the emotional um, intelligence around uh, the, the lived experience of all the peoples in our country. Well, if we had those things, then we actually could reduce the need for the focus on law enforcement to fix all of these problems, right? So that to me is what is meant by defund the police. States across the country, including New York, are seeing a surge in COVID-19 cases. The pandemic itself has highlighted an issue when it comes to equitable health care coverage. California needs to be a supportive of the New York Health Act, which is a universal single-payer healthcare system that she says is cost-effective for a state to move to. She says practical make the switch to this type of healthcare coverage in these COVID times, and that the public should start demanding the state to change. I need the public to fight for it as well, and that is something that I've heard, um, to organize, 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 just like we did with anti-fracking, a huge success. We need the same thing with healthcare. In addition to that, Cal says she'll work to ensure that Roe v. Wade is codified, protected, and enforced in New York, should the U.S. Supreme Court overturn it. But when returning to the coronavirus, Governor Cuomo recently released a vaccine distribution plan for whenever a vaccine is approved by the FDA. Kels is a public health scientist, and she says that if a vaccine goes through enough scientific rigor, then she will support adding it to the mandatory vaccinations list for children attending school in New York. She said there also needs to be more transparency about the vaccines being tested and created right now. But with that, she said there is still a lot of misunderstanding of the community surrounding its requirements in society. One, that it is in schools as it currently stands. And two, that it is not criminalized. So if someone chooses, for example, not to vaccinate their children, they're not going to jail. They just can't send their children to private or public schools. And that's really important. Cal said people's constitutional rights will still be protected when it comes to the vaccine and that medical exemptions will also be offered. She also says she will do whatever is necessary to protect all New Yorkers from the virus should a second wave hit the area, even if that means bringing the state back to what it was like in March. Our livelihood is super important and we have to put other 
uh, systems in place, like super pushing the federal government, um, you know, to, to um, you know, put forward stimulus packages. But our job is to prevent death. And there's no going back from death. But if it is necessary because we are having a surge in COVID cases, then yes, if that is what is deemed to be necessary, I would support it so that we can live another day to recover. Kel said she will stick to her values that she has outlined if elected and know that as an epidemiologist, the timing for her to be elected to the state assembly feels right. What you see is what you get. Um, and I uh, really focus on being as accessible as I possibly can. Um, and if that is what people want, then please, by all means, I would, I would love your support. And, and I, do, um, I do believe that in these days, um, in this time, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good fit for, for what I'm hearing in the community and what the community wants. Um, the last thing I would say is that I'm an epidemiologist in the middle of an epidemic. I will be the only public health uh, you know, PhD doctor in the entire state legislature. So for me, it just feels like it's the right time and place. To learn more about Kellis, you can go to her website at kellis4, as in the number 4, ny.com. If you'd like to learn more about Kellis' opponent, you can listen to our interview of Matthew McIntyre later this week on this station or on WICB.org. Stay tuned to our social media pages for updates. For WICB News, I'm Jordan Broking. We at WICB News are currently working on our 2020 election special, featuring interviews with Kel's opponent, Matthew McIntyre, as well as state Senate candidates incumbent Tom O'Mara and challenger Leslie Danks-Burke. The state Senate candidates spoke to me about their most important issues. The economy and jobs uh, is by far the biggest issue. That's my focus. Taxes, the very high taxes that burden regular working folks. As well as their stances on the protests, what their vision is for Upstate, and more. Stay tuned to our social media and to WICB.org for when this releases soon for you early voters. And tune in to Ithaca Now next week to get your rundown before Election Day. Make sure to subscribe to Ithaca Now on your favorite podcast app to hear it first. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Beck Legato. As people continue to face not only physical but mental health struggles throughout the pandemic, Southside Community Center hosted a Black Town Hall on mental health in the Black community. The forum, led by local leaders and leaders from Cornell and IC, also explored the history of famed musician Nina Simone and her struggles with mental health. Correspondent Nija Young went to hear. From 7 to 9 this past Wednesday night, Southside Community Center hosted a Black Town Hall via Facebook Live to discuss mental health and Black communities. Southside was incorporated by a group of Black women. They were called the Francis Harper Women's Club, and this is 1934. So we aren't far from being 100 years old celebrating our centennial. The event set out to shed light on the intersectional struggles of Black women, while honoring the life and legacy of musician and civil rights activist Nina Simone, who lived with manic depression and bipolar disorder. The discussion was moderated by Dr. Nia Nunn, Associate Professor in the Department of Education at Ithaca College, as well as President of Southside's Board of Directors. The members of the panel were all Black women, and included six members from Ithaca College and Cornell University, as well as two community leaders. The panel began by discussing the stigma surrounding mental health in the Black community, 
Many panelists agreed that struggles that aren't visible are often denied or overlooked. Ariane Almond, a senior at Cornell, said that mental health issues in the Black community often stem from dealing with trauma. Are people being slaughtered and treated less than? Um, that takes a, a toll on you mentally, whether or not you, you think it does. Um, a lot of the microaggressions that we may face in day-to-day situations may take a toll on us, and we may not even um, understand that. In Finding Ways to Cope, the speakers discussed the significance of creating community in physical spaces. IC sophomore Kelly Clark shared how remote learning amid the pandemic has changed how she connects with friends and explain why she feels in-person interaction is so important. It's, it's almost traumatic. Like, it's, 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 it's really just like having the socialization is just one of my needs. Talking about the language of mental health, I feel like we constantly are saying, like, things need to be fixed or something's wrong with you. And it's like, no, my needs are just not being met. Spaces such as the African Latino Society or the ALS Room at Ithaca College served as a place for POC students to meet for org meetings and events or more casual conversations and studying. Panelists discussed what else institutions can be doing to support and maintain the mental health of Black women. Bianca Beckwith, a junior at Cornell studying biological sciences with a concentration in neurobiology and behavior, expressed that college campuses should be equipped and committed to supporting Black students throughout their time at an institution. From undergrad through their graduate school training, are you following them throughout the years? Are you ensuring that, because who's going to be these Black female therapists that you want to provide if you're not supporting them to get to that place? And we already know that there's so many systemic barriers to us having this education, being able to stay in school, whether it's financial support, mental support, emotional support. I mean demanding more. I mean, follow me from my start if you really want to see me get to the finish line. A brief intermission allowed panelists and viewers to stretch, breathe, and grab a sip of water, while slides presented a list of mental health resources, including those specific to Black communities, such as the Black Emotional and Mental Health, or BEAM Collective, as well as Melanin and Mental Health. When the speakers reconvened, they opened up about their experiences with speaking about mental health struggles with their families. Nicole Bethany Onwuka, a junior at Ithaca College, said that the topic of mental health was not common in her family, and explained how Black women are often forced to put up a defense, numbing their feelings to traumatic experiences. Something's wrong, but I'm okay. But at the same time, am I giving myself enough time to process it, or am I so busy trying to help the next person? I think Black women uh, do that a lot. Nina Simone is one of 20 Black leaders being taught to Ithaca youth through Southside Community Center's Black Consciousness Curriculum, which has also invited local Black students to assist in the virtual teaching. For the panel members and those watching, the town hall was an opportunity to catch their breath and feel validated in their identities and emotions. Rosanna Malone, a community leader and teacher at Downtown Ithaca Children's Center, shared what the event meant to her. Um, so knowing that there's someone else out there around my age that understands and I'm not alone, um, I've grown in my sisterhood today and added with new faces and, I, and I'm loving it. For WICB News, I'm Nigel Young. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Beck Legato.
This weekend, Cornell's Department of Performing and Media Arts is hosting their virtual Vibrance Festival with different performances led by student women artists of color. News Director Jay Bradley spoke to Carly Robinson, director of In the Parlor, one of the plays at the event. More details and tickets for this weekend can be found on Cornell PMA's Facebook page. Cornell's Performing Media Arts is taking advantage of theater going online with their virtual Vibrance Festival this weekend. Three virtual performances led by women artists of color will be put on. The dance performance Exhibit Noir Friday at 7.30 p.m. and 2 p.m. on Saturday, and the American Slavery Projects in the Parlor Saturday at 7.30 p.m. More details can be found on cornell.pma.edu. I spoke to Carly Robinson, a graduating senior at Cornell who is directing PMA's production of In the Parlor. It was written by Judy Tate, who is a phenomenal playwright. Um, she is also a, a TV writer. Um, and I know her through our connection with Civic Ensemble. Um, and her theater company project is called the American Slavery Project. And I first saw this show this summer for Juneteenth. They did a three show premiere on YouTube and they were all radio dramas. And so I got to listen to the show during Juneteenth and I was like, wow, the show is amazing. It's about black women, it's about sororities and just community and like suffrage, women's suffrage. It was like all of these amazing things packed into a small 30 minute show. And towards closer to the end of the summer, the grad students of PMA reached out to some of the undergraduates and said, hey, do you want to collaborate on a project? Through that, Virtual Vibrance was born, the whole festival, thinking of how do we do what we are asking the department to do? How do we model that um, and start centering some voices of color, creators of color, artists of color? Um, and so then I got to reach out to Judy ask her if I could use her show and produce it. And she said, yes. And so here we are <laughs> months and months later. When did you guys decide on the idea of a radio drama as opposed to say like the hangar theater is doing with the, the Zoom theater? Right. From the moment that I heard it and into like this position of being able to actually produce it, I knew that I wanted to do radio um, we have, a we had a small timeline, um, and <laughs> I just kind of got tired of Zoom theater. I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's fun and all, but I think really getting to focus on voice and the relationships that come and that can be expressed through audio and vocals alone was really important to me to, and like exciting. It was exciting to explore that. Um, and so this rehearsal process was very short. You know, we had two weeks that we were like, okay, we're gonna like rehearse this and then we're gonna record it. And <laughs> now here we are. Yeah, and I think, I, I wanna hear your take on this. I think that 
Zoom theater is going to be very much a product of the moment, but having like, I mean, fictional podcasts, radio dramas have existed far before and they're going to continue existing after. Was that kind of your thought process in that it will be um, less bogged down by the time? I do think that I really wanted to get away from Zoom theater and and the time that we're in and all of this, like, oh, another COVID show, you know, um, which I think is very, is usually signified by Zoom theaters, like, oh, well, here we go again, you know, like, why am I <laughs> uh, spending even more time in front of my computer when there are so many other mechanisms of theater of storytelling like you said that have existed without uh visuals and being physically in space with each other they have existed without that for very long periods of time and are established art forms um that you know kind of get lost and now we have such an opportunity to explore all of those things um once again so I, I was curious, uh, it being an audio production, uh, is this your first time doing an audio only production? And going off of that, did you pull from any uh, specific influences with your directing, whether it be a, a podcast or a radio show you've heard in the past or that sort of thing? It is my first time directing um, a radio show. And I will say I was very naive. <laughs> Um, learned a lot during the process um, and I did not do my research beforehand. I'll, I'll be completely honest and kind of was just like, oh, it'll be easier because I don't have to like do blocking or anything. <laughs> um, and I do, you know, if I could do something different, I definitely would do more research of what is the style of radio drama? Um, what is that style? What, and I mean, this piece is a period piece in and of itself. It's from, it's set in 1913. Um, so yeah, just would have done a lot more research about those things. Um, yeah, so tell me a little bit more about the event as a whole, tell me about uh, what it is and kind of touch on what your peers are doing also. Yes, um, so the event is called Virtual Vibrance. Um, it is a collaboration between Performing and Media Arts graduate students and undergraduate students. It will be featuring two shows, both led by Black women. Um, one of course is the show that I directed and co-produced uh, called In the Parlor. That'll be happening on Saturday night at 7.30, Halloween. Um, and then the other show is a dance performance um, that has been filmed. Um, and it was choreographed and created by Faith Paris, who is very new to Cornell. She is a freshman. Um, she is a Black woman. She's amazing. <laughs> very creative. Um, it is called Exhibit Noir. And it really centers, um, it, there are a lot of moving pieces, but um, it really shows kind of starting with the African dias diaspora and going into the history of um, Black culture and 
kind of ending with some more Caribbean influences. So it is extremely interesting. I'm very excited for it. <laughs> um, and that'll be happening on Friday night at 7.30 and then Saturday at 2 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. More details and reservations can be made on cornell.pma.edu. The Virtual Vibrance Festival is this weekend. The Dance Performance Exhibit Noir is Friday at 7.30 p.m. and 2 p.m. on Saturday. And the American Slavery Project's radio drama In the Parlor will be this Saturday at 7.30 p.m. If you missed the performances, Exhibit Noir will be available on the PMA's YouTube page, and the American Slavery Project's production of In the Parlor can be found on YouTube as well. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org, and if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear the story anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from manager of television and radio operations, Jeremy Menard, WICP station manager Sam Ives, and programming director Lou Barron. Ithaca Now is produced by news director Jay Bradley with assistance from news managing director Celine Tudor, news production director Hamadri Seth, and today's correspondents Christian Maitri, George Christopher, Jordan Broking, and Yijia Young. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday, and keep your eyes out for our election special coming soon to podcast apps. I'm Beck Legato, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.